Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The monarchy and the British military are interlinked, some might argue inseparable. But why are there such close links between the two? The Queen is Commander-in-Chief of British Armed Forces, royals often serve in the military, and everything from Royal Navy ships to British Army regiments have royal names and royal links. Well, I'm your host James Rogers, this is the Warfare Podcast, and as Her Majesty the Queen becomes the first British monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee after 70 years of service, we're looking at the role of the monarchy and the military. To take us through this history from the First World War to today, we welcome historian Heather Jones on the podcast. Heather is a professor at University College London and the author of a new book, For King and Country, The British Monarchy and the First World War. So as you enjoy your Jubilee Bank holiday, sit back, relax, and hear about why exactly the military serve for king, queen, and country. Enjoy. Hi, Heather. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? I'm in great form. Thank you for having me. Not a problem at all. We are here to talk about the Jubilee, the fact that the Queen will be celebrating her Platinum Jubilee after 70 years of service. And so I wanted to get an expert on war, on monarchy, onto the podcast to take us through this long history of a relationship between the monarchy and the major conflicts throughout history. And we're going to focus quite a lot on the First World War, as you are one of the world's experts on this particular conflict. But before we go into all that, Heather, what are you going to do with your Jubilee weekend? What are you going to do with your Queen's Days Off? I'm going to relax and I'm going to have a look at what's going on in my town. I'll have my historian hat on, so I'll be more of an observer uh, than a participant because I'm very interested in watching what's going on. The windows are decorated in my local town and there's actually bunting up on some of the streets. So I'm quite curious to see how this is going to develop and whether it'll be similar to the coronation and there'll be lots of participation or whether it'll be different and people will be off using the bank holiday for weekend breaks. Let's see, but I'll be watching closely. So take us back into history, because when we think about it, most of the wars throughout the 20th century, at least that turn into the 20th century and back throughout history, were all about God save the king, God save the queen, and doing this for king 
and country. Would you say that the First World War was truly the epitome of that notion of fighting to save the king? Well, there's an interesting history to this term for king and country. So when you look into it, the idea of, for queen and country actually comes during the, the reign of Queen Victoria. It becomes a very popular term during the Second South African War, Boer War. And so that's when we start seeing that become something that crops up in music hall songs. And then during World War I, during the first year of the war, 1914 to 1915, you see a huge surge in the use of this term. It's being used in songs. It's being used on recruitment posters. And um, the term for king and country is on postcards that people are sending to their loved ones. And later on, we find it on war memorials after the war has ended. So it does have a very, very strong presence in World War I. And I actually think the term isn't that old. So people would have said, God save the king, God save the queen in earlier wars. But the actual for queen and country, for king and country, that expression is actually more modern. It's a late 19th century, early 20th century one. Ah, I see. And so when young men are being sent to the battlefields of Europe for those bloody, muddy battles like the Somme, and the rhetoric is that, you know, you're doing this to save the country and, like we said, God save the king, at what point does this start to get a bit tiresome for the troops? At what point do we start to look back in this narrative of lions led by donkeys? When do we start to see it embroil the royal family? So it's quite interesting because it never really does embroil the royal family. And that's one of the big question marks ah. for me about World War I. So this term for king and country is very important in war recruitment during the volunteering phase of the war, before Britain has a conscript army, and when they need to mobilise men to volunteer, to fight and to risk their lives. And so this term is one that is used and that particularly the establishment think will have a big effect on getting men to join the colours. And it does. In that first year of the war, there's a very romantic view of the monarchy. It's very much in vogue. You have huge crowds going to Buckingham Palace when the war breaks out, up to 50,000 people by the end of that week, between the 2nd and the 9th of August, 1914. People are flocking to the palace, calling out the royal family onto the balcony, looking for the monarchy to kind of give its imprimatur to the war. And so there's this sense of monarchy being really important in that first phase of mobilisation. Then conscription comes in and the war really changes it and people become war weary. And in 1917, we are finding evidence of troops um, starting to mutter about this idea of a war for king and country, particularly after the Russian Revolution breaks out. And into 1918 as well, there's an occasion where the king visits the front and the ordinary other ranks don't cheer. They mutter to each other under their breath. There's an oral history interview that describes that. But none of this really makes the mainstream press. None of this really breaks through as such. And actually, after the war, there's very little discussion of the role of monarchy or monarchism in war recruitment. And right up to the present day, really, there isn't much of a, a debate about the role of the monarchy in the First World War. In fact, in many ways, it's something that's only been discussed quite recently. Books only starting to come out on that quite recently. The monarchy in World War I has sort of fallen between two stools. Historians who work on the late 19th century monarchy go up to 1914. Historians who work on the war don't really do monarchy. So there's been this sort of silence around it. It hasn't really been very discussed, its role in recruitment and its role as a symbol of the war effort. But am I right in thinking that there are elements of the First World War that could be seen as a, a family feud? There are links between the British royal family and the German, of course. There's interrelations across Europe. But the First World War does have a, a major impact on one element of the royal family, and that's its name. It had to change its names from Saxe-Coburg-Goth to Windsor. Was that as a result of those German links of public opinion, of attitudes changing because of the war? 
So that's a really interesting question. So first of all, it's not really a family feud. In many ways, the war takes the British monarchy by surprise. One couldn't say it was a feud between George V and his cousin. Um, George V is horrified by the Kaiser's actions, particularly the decision of Germany to invade Belgium. That's when the king really swings behind the idea of Britain going to war. Until then, he's quite concerned and really not entirely committed to the idea of going to war and wants to avoid war at all costs. So it's not really a family feud. It's something that sort of emerges almost out of the blue for the British monarchy. And they have to respond to it. And what we see is the king cutting off his cousin from that point and having no more connection or anything to do with the Kaiser. And so it's much more an international relations situation that impinges on family relations. In terms of the name change, what's fascinating is when you look at the discussions in the British public sphere, in the press at the time, in speeches, until 1917, there's really not much discussion of the British royal family's German heritage, which seems extraordinary when you think for example, Mary of Teck, the queen, is basically a, a royal by dint of being related to a German principality, being descended from, you know, to Germany. Her parents are, are, are German. So there's a sense of silence around the royal family's Germanness until quite late in the war. And what triggers opening that discussion about their German links is actually the Russian Revolution of spring 1917. Because that allows a space in the British press. They have to cover it. It's too big a story. And it allows a space in the British media to talk about what happens when monarchies fail. And there's a lot of discussion about continental monarchies as failing at this point in the war and not being able to deal with the war. And the question about the Russian situation. Before the war, there was quite a lot of animosity towards the Tsar anyway, as an autocrat and, a, and very sort of negative views of Russian monarchism in the British public. And this all comes back out in February 1917 with the Russian Revolution. So Suddenly, the British monarchy realises this could be a threat to them. This discussion of continental monarchies and their failings, which isn't really specifically talking about the British monarchy. There's very little mention of George V and Queen Mary in these press articles. And in fact, at the end, many of the commentators in the press say things like, but of course, our monarchy is wonderful. And it's completely different to the German version or the Russian version. We have a tradition of a British democratic monarchy and it's a completely separate thing. And George V is wonderful and Queen Mary is wonderful. So actually, there's often this disclaimer at the end. It's not this attack on the British monarchy that one might think. But in that coding about continental monarchies, there's an opening of a question about whether monarchism and monarchies have a future, whether in fact they're not very modern, whether in fact actually states that are moving into a kind of advanced stage of economic development really should have a monarchy. And particularly there's a letter by H.G. Wells, which is sent to the Times, which is raising this question of perhaps monarchism itself is outdated. And that's really, that is a very kind of cloaked attack on the British monarchy. It's coupled with a big column that talks about how wonderful the British monarchy is, which comes from the Times editor. So it's not like it's published in isolation and it's a really serious attack. And in fact, Wells then issues a disclaimer a few days later saying he, he never meant to attack the British monarchy. So the, the, it's not, it's, again, it's, these attacks are actually quite limited, but they cause huge panic at court. And there's a huge sense that actually suddenly what's happening in Russia and the new debates about monarchism that are opening could be a risk to the British monarchy. Now, one of the things that comes out in these press debates is a discussion of their Germanness amongst fringe radical socialist press papers in London. These aren't papers with huge circulation. They're often written by radical dissidents who are on the far left of the socialist movement. They're not people with a huge following. But those press reports are also making it to the palace and they turn up in some of the files in the Royal Archives. So they're being monitored. And this leads the king's advisor, Lord Stanford in particular, to feel that the monarchy should change its name. That This is one of the key things that must happen. The king himself also starts to hear at dinner parties that people are talking and that there's mention of him having German links. And at one point, he famously reacts very angrily to being described as an alien. And, you know, he really doesn't like this. So there is this sense of worry at court that comes out of this moment in 1917 that 
their Germanness suddenly crops up at this point in the war. So then they basically change the name at that point in response to that. So by summer of 1917, they have changed their name from Saxe-Coburg-Gotha to Windsor. And Windsor was chosen by Lord Stanfordham as a very British sounding name. Now, I find all this fascinating as a historian, because if we look at Russia, what if we look at how the Tsarina Alexandra is attacked and attacked and attacked for her German origins? She comes from Germany. The kind of silence in Britain for the first years of the war around the royal family's German ancestry and connections is quite extraordinary. And it just indicates their sheer popularity. This silence is very odd. One would expect there to be more discussion about that, given the anti-German sentiment of the time. And even when there's a huge row in some of the more right-wing press in Britain about the king still having some of the banners of German princes in St. George's Chapel in Windsor, and he eventually has to take them down because there's pressure on him from sort of right-wing press uh, agitators. Even then, nobody's saying the king is German. So it's very much, there's this odd silence until 1917. So that to me indicated less a monarchy under threat and more monarchy that's actually still quite popular by 1917 and that acts preemptively. So by changing the name so quickly, so early, before there's really any major press attacks about the monarchy's Germanness or even about its, you know, monarchism, the British monarchy itself, and they're still talking about the continental monarchies, by acting at that point, they cut off any major reaction that could have developed and could have blown up against them during the war. So Queen Elizabeth II is the epitome of a, a strong female figure in domestic politics, global politics, and within the military. But if we look back through the history of the monarchy, she's not the first strong woman to take on this role. What about Queen Mary, Heather? Queen Mary is a really interesting precedent for Queen Elizabeth. And actually, they had a very close relationship as grandmother and granddaughter. And Queen Mary during World War One really becomes this very strong female figure, matriarch of the nation, mother of the nation. And many women who have sons at the front actually say to her, you know, that they identify with her as a mother. One of the quotes is, you're a mother yourself, you understand you've boys in the war. And so the fact that Queen Mary is at home worrying about her two oldest sons, one's in the Western Front, one's in the Navy, gives the monarchy a real link to ordinary people. But beyond that, she's also a terrific organiser. She's really involved in more charitable organisation work. She takes a very hands-on approach and she makes very few concessions to the fact, you know, of her gender. She really is out there, visible. She defers to George V in terms of him being the monarch, but she herself creates a strong image for herself, very much as a, an independent character in the monarchy. And people really look up to that. It makes the monarchy very popular. She's incredibly popular among the soldiers, interestingly. And when she goes to the Western Front in 1917, she gets a really good reception. Throughout June on Not Just the Tudors, we're honouring Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee by focusing on queenship in the 16th and 17th centuries. I'm Professor Suzanne Lipscomb, and all this month with my guests, I'll be exploring the coronations of Tudor queens, Queen's Regnant and Queen's Consort, who wielded power in ways we haven't thought about. Really, when we begin to look at queen consorts, we notice that there's a lot of ways at the Renaissance court that women could hold informal power through their relationship with the king. Then there's the queen who ruled over the Spanish Netherlands and the female Swedish king. You heard that right. What did a 17th century person actually mean by saying, oh, she dresses like a man? If she would have worn male clothing, she wouldn't have been able to rule Sweden. So for a month of all things magisterial and monarchical, look no further than not just the Tudors from History Hit. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So you mentioned about this public connection between Queen Mary and the populace during times of war. How do we see this start to change, if at all, after the First World War? Does the monarchy's relationship with the public change? Does it become closer out of necessity so they don't seem as detached and displaced out of British society? Is the military part of that? In fact, is the reason why you have the royal family and the Queen as the figurehead of the military is a lot of it about being able to connect with the public and have that patriotic and powerful presence? In World War I, I'd say it's a slightly different relationship between the monarchy and the army. So the king is not a figurehead. The king is very much still seen, not as kind of figurative commander-in-chief, but as the actual commander-in-chief who has delegated his powers to the commander-in-chief in the field, which is by the end of the war, Sir Douglas Haig. So there's a very strong sense, both on the part of the king and of the soldiers, that this is a direct relationship between monarch and soldier, and that he's looking out for them and the sense of direct duty, particularly for those volunteers who volunteer at the start of the war to fight for king and country. And so that creates a kind of sense on the part of the king that he has to check up on his troops' welfare, that he should be going to see them at the front, which he does, that he should be going to see what happens to them when they're in hospital. If he sees anything that he doesn't like, he he raises those issues. So there's a very personal idea of that bond in World War I, a very, very close symbolic connection. Many of these men don't have the vote. Many of these working class men don't have the vote. They define themselves as British subjects of the monarch. That's the concept of what Britishness is in this period. The idea of the kind of citizen isn't really so developed. You are a subject of the monarch. That is what makes you British. That's the concept of Britishness. So it's quite a powerful relationship in ways that I think maybe aren't quite the same in terms of our contemporary understanding today. Now, how that relationship changes over the war is very important. George V, when he became king, which is only just before the war, he'd focused on trying to be more accessible, going out and meeting ordinary people. And when the war breaks out, he really extends that. So he and Queen Mary had been visiting mining regions before the war in kind of experimental visits. They'd gone into miners' cottages. They'd sort of tried to do aspects of what we would now recognise as the walkabout. 
But during the war, this takes off and they visit munitions factories. They reach out to Labour. They have people from the Labour Party to uh, Buckingham Palace, to Windsor as guests. They talk to them, they get to know them. Queen Mary develops quite a close friendship with a Labour radical uh, who actually supports the Bolshevik Revolution, Mary MacArthur. And they become quite good friends around their aid efforts for working class women in Britain during the war. The King and Queen both go to the industrial north. And they spend a lot of time on the home front reaching out to parts of the population that perhaps previously wouldn't have seen uh, the monarch in person. They open up Buckingham Palace. They, they bring in garden parties so people don't have to wear fancy clothes to go to court. So it's easier for ordinary people to come to events. And um, they open up events for the wounded who come to Buckingham Palace and are brought there and are entertained during the war. And they, they really try to be seen and engage with ordinary people. And if one thinks of the royal honours system, They invent new honours during the war for ordinary civilians. And so working class people can, for the first time, get a medal presented from the king who pins it onto their clothing. You know, this is a very personal kind of reaching out. The king and queen also go to the front. The queen goes uh, once during the war. The king goes six times. And when the king goes, he really spends a significant amount of time touring around in a car, trying to access as many soldiers as possible. What's really key in this change is this idea of being present, of speaking to ordinary people. And the hospital visits, when they do sometimes two or three visits a day, they talk to the individual wounded. They spend time with them. And also there's a sense of immediacy in all of this, that they must be at places where things happen. They must be on the spot. So when London is bombed in 1917, in June 1917, in the Gutha raids, and about 262 people are killed, The king immediately goes to those areas within hours of that raid. He is there literally as they're pulling the bodies out of buildings. And he then goes on to the hospitals to visit the wounded and spend time with them. So there's this sense of, I think, a a switch in mindset, switch in gear amongst the royals that they must act fast in wartime. They must be visible, but also immediately visible in terms of supporting individuals. And one key moment that I think really indicates their popularity is in 1917, there was a strike wave across uh, the north of England and particularly around what was known as the Red Clyde in Scotland. And Lloyd George is deeply, deeply unpopular. He's seen as somebody who's trying to dilute the workforce, maybe undercut pay, um, particularly in his views of using munitions workers and women munitions workers. And many of the unions and the labour activists are not content with him. And there's also some quite strong radical and militant union movements in those areas. And the cabinet discusses what to do. And they decide that the king and queen will go to these areas. And that's quite an extraordinary decision. That visit then goes ahead and they actually postpone police arrests of some of the strikers until after the king and queen have been. And the king meets with many of the leading Labour militants there. He actually has one-to-one meetings with some of them to discuss their grievances. Now, I can't imagine that happening in Germany, where the Kaiser visiting a munitions factory isn't really on the cards. And if one thinks of Russia it would be impossible. So this idea of a kind of a British monarchy that is quite close, actually, to its working classes in war and tries to make sure it's never out of the loop about what their grievances are. That's a very key wartime innovation. And that really is George V and Queen Mary who are doing that. A lot of what you're explaining here sounds like a very modern British royal family. And it's fascinating to learn that so much of it emerges out of that cauldron of the First World War. So is it the case that the Queen learnt a lot of these lessons and applied them to her reign? Is it a reason why she's been able to maintain her role and secure the royal family for now 70 years? Well, I think what I'd say about one of the ways the royal family secures itself by the end of World War I is by becoming the conduit for commemoration. So George V is the key figure at the burial of the unknown warrior. 
he initially has to be talked into this idea. He's not that keen on it. But as ever, his very wise private secretary, Lord Stamford, who is a guru of public relations, explains to him that this would be a really good idea. And so the king unveils the cenotaph and attends the burial of the unknown warrior the same day. And he is the chief mourner. He is the one throwing the earth on the coffin. And it says on the tomb of the unknown warrior that they buried him among the kings. So in a way, the unknown soldier becomes a member of the royal family. And the royal family become associated with the honoured war dead and mass national grief. And they become the symbols who carry and who convey and who honour that mass grief for the war dead. And that really gives them a role into the interwar period that's a very, very important one. And it helps to kind of, again, explain why the royal family continues to have a kind of prestige in the interwar period, because in many ways they're not seen as having been involved in the recruitment or of the war dead. They're seen as the people for whom the war dead have died and who are honouring that sacrifice in return, this reciprocal relationship of honouring the war dead. And that's really important for the present queen, because if we think of the abdication crisis at that point, one of the reasons why there was so much anger towards Edward VIII's decision to abdicate for a woman was because that royal family and that period, Queen Mary, his mother, they felt that men had died for the monarchy and he could not give up a woman for the people. So that was breaking that reciprocal relationship of that bond, that tie, that the royals during the war had served the people and had interpreted the war as a huge debt that they owed to the people who had died for them and who had won the war on Britain's behalf and that they must ever after live lives of service to the people in response for that, in payment for that. It was an emotional debt that they could never fully repay. And it caused huge stress for George V and Queen Mary in their later lives, this sense that all these young men had died you know, in their name, as it were. And the present queen, who was a child during the abdication crisis, I think she was very marked by this idea of, of service, of service as being the absolute duty of the monarch in exchange for this history of world wars where people had died for king and country. You know, it's a huge, in a way, a huge burden, but it's a very reciprocal relationship. And therefore, commemorating the war dead, living up to that sacrifice is embedded in the monarchy's understanding of service to this day. What about religion in here, Heather? Do we have a sense that the Queen being the head of the Church of England, the defender of the faith, does that have a role, a reason why she has her role within the military as well, about fighting for defending the faith of Great Britain and the Empire? Well, I think the monarch's role as Supreme Governor of the Church of England is very important in World War I. It matters in terms of this is a devout country and the monarchy is seen in religious terms. So if you think of the ceremony of coronation, it's a religious moment. They're anointed with oils. It's a priest-like moment. They are set apart. The monarch is set apart from ordinary mortals through being anointed. And that's a really important understanding that George V has of his monarchy and his role. He's a very pious man. And so that service and that idea of being divinely chosen for that role is really important to him. And people at the time understand the monarchy's role in that way. So when the king does make statements, he refers to, I invoke God's blessing or I call for God's blessing upon my armies. He refers very often in those terms to calling upon a divine language for Britain's war effort. That, for a religious culture at the time, has big significance. Now, the extent of that then plays out on the Western Front is something we can question. I think many soldiers during the war are coming from urban areas, areas that have lost contact with the Church of England or that where religious practice has declined. Um, and so there is a question mark about the religiosity of the average British soldier on the Western Front. Nevertheless, they are attending church parades. Uh, we do have evidence that some of them experience a kind of religious revival during the war. And in terms of their monarchy, what they want 
they do seem to accept this religious imprimatur and language around the king and around the king's role. And for the home front, this is seen as something of comfort, the idea that the monarchy is associated with the divine. And if we look at things like national days of prayer, which in this period could be called by the monarchy or could be called by the Church of England on behalf of the monarchy, those are incredibly well attended. This would be a call that would be issued for people to attend church on a specific day, to pray for victory in the war, to pray for God's blessing upon the country. You know, they've been called throughout history. And so this isn't an innovation of World War One, but they're very, very well attended during World War One. And this continues into World War Two. We again see national days of prayer. Um, But in World War One, they are I think, slightly more closely associated with the monarchy. So again, that idea of the king as having a specific religious role and using religious language in World War I is very present in that conflict. Heather, it's been fascinating to learn about all these different factors of religion, war, the consolidating of royal power, how they all come together during the First World War. And they have these legacies that stretch through the 20th century. But do we see many of these legacies left today? Is this why... I don't know, the royal family has such a powerful role in the military today. Is it why the Queen is still the figurehead? Why some of her children and grandchildren have served in active conflicts around the world? Why we'll see the remnants of a kind of uh, a royal name being attached to ships, Her Majesty's ships, of course? Is this why we're going to see so many military parades over the weekend and medals galore? Yes, I think there is a very strong heritage that comes out of both world wars that closely binds the monarchy to the military as a way of conveying their role in the state and their role in society. And I think that is something that we will see more of during the Jubilee. In terms of things like ship naming, in terms of things like regimental associations, even badges, you know, regimental badges, monarchism is very much present. And that's because monarchism is a fundamental element of the British state. I come from Ireland, it's a republic. I mean, I notice the difference immediately. And this idea of of monarchism as a structure of the state and how the constitution actually works is, you know, very important. And during the First World War, for example, much legislation is actually passed through the Privy Council because Parliament is overwhelmed with legislation. They aren't able to get all the war legislation through quickly enough. So actually the government starts using the royal prerogative to pass legislation. So there is a very significant role for the monarchy in the British constitution, in the British state, and the army is a manifestation visually of that. But there are other manifestations too. If we look at the courts, if we look at the Church of England, this is part of the whole of this state's culture. And there's a lot of monarchism embedded in that. So it's not actually just the army. I think the army is probably the most visual element of that. In terms of the legacies of the two world wars, I think what's very interesting is over time, we see the role of the prime minister becoming more visual across the two world wars and the role of the monarch less so. So if one looks at World War I, at the end of the war, there would be no question of Lloyd George joining George V on the balcony moment. This, you know, the, the king is head and shoulders above the prime minister, whatever the prime minister Lloyd George might have wanted, because he was quite keen to have a little bit more, a little bit more visual status in everything. And um, even though he himself was also a monarchist and wanted to reform the monarchy, he was not, you know, he was never going to get that status in World War I. It was all about the king and queen. By the end of World War II, Winston Churchill has actually begun to overshadow George VI. Winston Churchill's speeches are being listened to by larger numbers of people than the kings on the radio. Winston Churchill is on the balcony for one of those moments at victory. So there's a change over time going on there. So while there are legacies, there is also change. And I think now, in terms of understanding the British state, the prime minister is much more the visual symbol of the state by the end of the 20th century. This has got to be the prequel to The Crown, hasn't it, Heather? We've got to get some producers out there to make a whole new TV series 
on the period in history when the monarchy was going through all this change before Queen Elizabeth II takes up the throne. That's what we need to see next. Honestly, it would be brilliant. I think the role of the Prince of Wales, uh, Edward, and how the war changes him and damages him fundamentally as a person uh, through his experiences on the Western Front and his parents who are trying to hold it all together while being quite publicly emotionally repressed, but actually seeing horrific scenes in hospitals, in, in many cases, witnessing men dying in hospitals and trying to give words of comfort. I mean, there's an awful lot of drama there. And if you look at Princess Mary, the eldest daughter, who her parents really don't want to let go, um, who's sort of trapped in going with them to all these hospital visits, all these wartime experiences. And then Bertie, who's sent off to the Battle of Jutland and, and experiencing extreme stress, which is aggravating a stomach ulcer complaint that he has. I mean, there's an awful lot of human drama there. It would make an absolutely brilliant series, I think. But then I'm slightly biased because I've written a book on it. <laughs> well, I think you really have shown us this unwavering monarchist commitment to the British military, a, a relationship that is uh, beneficial both ways. And we can certainly say that the monarchy has held its power due to its relationship with the military. But it's something that earns the royal family great respect today, even as it goes through turbulent, controversial times. So Heather, you mentioned your book. Tell us, where can we read more about your research on the First World War when we're taking these days off over the Jubilee weekend to relax? Well, if you'd like some Jubilee uh, weekend reading on the First World War and the British monarchy, my book is called For King and Country, The British Monarchy and the First World War. And it's published by Cambridge University Press. And you can get it on Amazon. And interestingly, it's been discounted for the Jubilee period as well. So that's a, a little bit of a plug there. Well, there you go. You don't often get academic presses discounting books. So make the most of it. Heather, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to subscribe so you can access our original cutting-edge military histories each week, twice a week, every week. And if you think there's a history we need to cover, or you want to share your own family histories, then email us directly on warfare at historyhit.com. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland. 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.